You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Josh Meyer. Josh is the former chief terrorism reporter for the LA Times, and his uh, reporting inside Al-Qaeda was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, uh, which unfortunately he did not win, but he has twice been part of uh, Pulitzer Prize winning teams for his reporting. Uh, he was, interestingly enough, one of the uh, creators and producers for the TV series Level 9, which some of you may be familiar with. And now he teaches journalism for Northwestern University, uh, actually in a program here in Washington, the uh, National Security Journalism Program uh, in Washington. Josh's first book, which he's co-authored with Terry McDermott, also a veteran of the LA Times, uh, is... Uh, the Hunt for KSM, Inside the Pursuit and Takedown of the Real 9-11 Mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So, Josh, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thanks, Mark. Um, so how did you uh, and Terry come to write this book? This is a pretty ambitious topic, which, by the way, I think you've done you know, a, a brilliant job of. But mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you come to launch into this project? Well, well thanks. Um, you know, somebody once said you should never write a book unless it's a subject that you absolutely can't get out of your head because it's certainly not worth the, the time or the money that you put into it. And um, I have to say that in this case, uh, you know, I was reporting for the uh, Los Angeles Times on terrorism starting before 9-11. Uh, by uh, early 2002, I'd started hearing from sources about a mysterious Mukhtar, or a, um, a guy who ultimately came to be known as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And I just was always um, fascinated by him um, as a character, but also even more so by the people that were hunting him. The fact that a guy like this, who could be the most wanted man in the world, probably, besides Osama bin Laden, uh, was the object of a uh, top-secret sort of guns-up, you know, running-through-the-streets manhunt uh, for 18 months after 9-11 before he was captured. So I just wanted to figure out, uh, you know, how that came about and why they couldn't have caught him before 9-11. Because they, they were hunting him since 1993. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to ask about that. When did the U.S. intelligence community first become aware of KSM that, mm -hmm. and that he was somebody that we needed to be on the lookout for? Uh, 1993. He was the uncle of Ramzi Youssef, who was the, um, you know, the bomber of the first World Trade Center in 1993. And they found a, um, some, he had, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had wired his nephew $660 in money from a place in the United Arab Emirates. And so they immediately, uh, excuse me, from Doha, um, 
so they immediately locked on to him as, as a suspect in the um, World Trade Center attacks. Uh, right after that, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi Youssef and a couple of other guys showed up in the Philippines where they were plotting to kill uh, President Clinton, uh, the Pope, uh, and to do a plot called Bojinka, which was uh, bombing or blowing up 12 airliners in midair as they crossed over the Atlantic to the United States. So they were hot on his trail starting probably in 1994. And when you say they, do you mean the FBI? Do you mean the FBI and the CIA? Who, who, are, who are the people really doing this hunting right. in, in the 1990s? Yeah, very good question. Um, you know, back then, and you know, it's so different than it is now, or it was so different. Um, you know, back then, the FBI's New York field office was the one that really had the international terrorism portfolio. Um, they were sort of the big dogs in the war on terrorism. Um, when they went overseas, of course, they worked with the CIA, you know, the station chiefs and so on, who worked in these other countries. But back then, the paradigm was that you would gather evidence, gather evidence against these people, uh, have them indicted, um, and then uh, capture them and render them back to the United States to face justice. So there was a small team of FBI agents uh, headed by a guy named Frank Pellegrino uh, from the New York field office who were, who were the ones chasing KSM. You talk in the book quite a lot about Frank Pellegrino. You want to mm. just say a few words about him? He seems to have been quite an interesting guy. Yeah, you know, he's still in the FBI, and uh, it was one of those things where, um, you know, w the way we split up the, the reporting on the book is I did the good guys and Terry did the bad guys. Um, I did the FBI and the CIA and so forth. And, um, you know, literally for f starting in 2002, people were saying, well, you have to talk to Frank Pellegrino. Um, but Frank wasn't talking. You know, he's still in the FBI, but uh, he's a very uh, idiosyncratic uh, FBI agent. He used to be an accountant, and he's also a lawyer. And what everybody told me was that Frank doesn't do things the FBI way. Frank does them his way. So I was very intrigued uh, by this guy. Um, and, you know, and and what he did to catch KSM before 9-11, uh, why he didn't catch him, and, and, and so on. So can you give us a little more on that then? I mean, uh, if, if the U.S. government, and particularly the FBI, had been aware of and worried about and looking for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed for eight years before September 11th, um, why didn't we get him? I mean, eight years is a long time to, to, to chase somebody. It is, um, Mark. And, and, you know, when I started reporting this, I fully expected to be writing a book uh, in which we um, – you know, essentially crucified these guys for not catching him. But the story is it always is, is much more complicated than that. These guys did their best to catch him. They were hamstrung by uh, inter internal politics which within the FBI, between the FBI and the CIA, um, to a very large degree also, be, you know, between the relationships with other governments like Pakistan and Qatar. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest problems is that while the government started to become fixated on al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden in the late 90s, um, KSM was perceived to be sort of a, a one-off, a cold case that hadn't been solved, but just one guy out there in the wilderness. And he was not a member of al-Qaeda at he, that time. No, and, he, and that's one of the big, um, uh, you know, mistakes was that the U.S. government, uh, Pellegrino, everybody at the FBI, the CIA, just d did not um, figure out that KSM had become uh, sort of joined forces with al-Qaeda. And if you ask KSM, he'll be happy to tell you um, that he never was al-Qaeda. He was an independent operator who joined forces with bin Laden, not working for him. And he insisted on independence on the 9-11 plot so that if it, uh, so that he could basically do it his way and, and bring the plot somewhere else if bin Laden didn't want to go forward with it. I want to just briefly go back and maybe get you to elaborate on something you, you mentioned a moment ago. Um, you referred to some 
sort of uh, issues between agencies. Mm -hmm. And you talk a, a little bit in the book about the wall, uh, mm -hmm. the, the difficulties in cooperating or coordinating between the FBI and the CIA. Mm -hmm. What was this wall? Yeah. And how much was it a real legal thing? And how much was it just a cultural thing of people assuming, well, we're not allowed to do X, or it wouldn't be right to do Y? You know, a lot of it was uh, sort of more assumption than than anything else, but, you know, perceptions are important. Um, you know, as we say in the book, there were instances where uh, even just within the FBI, they had people doing intelligence and they had doing uh, other people building criminal cases, and they could be sitting across from one another and they wouldn't be allowed to share information because if you were on one of the intel squads, you were not – gathering information to build a criminal case so they they perceived that there was a wall between them and uh, in hindsight you know the 9-11 Commission and others have looked into this and decided that the wall was a significant obstacle but that also people made it to be much higher or bigger than it was so it's a little of both you mentioned earlier talking about KSM that uh, while he was out in uh, the Far East that he made plans to or at least consider the possibility of killing the Pope, and I believe you said President Clinton, and he also the, the, the Bojinka plot. He was a pretty um, ambitious guy, I guess you could say. And I don't think a whole lot is known about, uh, uh, at least publicly, uh, uh, about the, the, the plots against the Pope and, mm -hmm. and President Clinton. How much of that was, you know, sort of vaporware, as they say in the software business, uh, mm -hmm. just sort of uh, a stray idea, and how far actually down the road did he, did he get on, on making any of those mm -hmm. things happen? Well, he's certainly an ambitious guy, um, and in fact, you know, one thing that I think the public is really missing is that if you were to, um, you know, really try to ascertain who is the most deadly terrorist of our time, I would think it's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, not not Osama bin Laden. If it wasn't for KSM, the 9/11 plot certainly would have never happened. Um, the plot against the Pope was very serious. They actually um, found in their uh, abandoned apartments. Um, uh, in fact, there was a fluke fire that happened that um, stopped them from doing some of these attacks. But they found, uh, you know, um, clerical robes and other disguise information. They found a lot of explosives. So these guys were very, very serious about this stuff. They'd rented an apartment on uh, a broad thoroughfare where they knew the Pope would be traveling. So they were they were quite serious. The Bojinka plot in particular was a very, very serious plot. Yeah, what was the Bojinka plot? Uh, they were going to use maybe five people altogether, and they were going to blow up uh, 12 airliners in midair as they crossed the Atlantic. It could have killed about 4,000 people. This was in 1995. Um, KSM did a trial run, and so did Ramzi Youssef. They blew up uh, they plotted a. Um, they planted explosives underneath a seat in one airliner, and a, and a Japanese tourist uh, or passenger was was literally blown in half and killed. Um, the FBI guys gathered evidence against, uh, evidence against that and used it to convict Ramzi Youssef. Um, but you know, this fire that happened was just a few weeks before they were supposed to launch the plot. So it, you know, who knows what would have happened if if that had gone gone forward. So that then caused them basically to abort the plot? Yeah. Um, two of the guys were caught almost immediately. Ramzi Youssef fled back to Pakistan, and um, that's a whole other story. He was caught about a year later. But KSM, you know, just stayed on the loose, and um, it, it's quite an amazing story. And that's, you know, in the hunt for KSM, we talk about that in the sense that he went to Brazil, he was in China, he went to uh, Bosnia a few times. I mean, this guy, you know, while Osama bin Laden was at headquarters thinking deep thoughts, you know, KSM was out there getting things done and recruiting people and raising money. And, and um, you know, even after 9-11, he's the guy that decapitated Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl. Well, I was going to ask you about that a little bit later, but since you raise it, um, how do we know that it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who decapitated Daniel Pearl? Um, I 
have not seen the video and I have no intention of seeing the video, but my understanding is that the face of the person doing the decapitation is not actually shown, that, i.e. Right. that he's purposely anonymous. So, mm-hmm. so how do we know that that was him? Well, um, there were a lot of eyewitnesses there that the Pakistanis, with help from the FBI, um, uh, interviewed. Um, there's one guy, Omar Saeed Sheikh, who talks about this. He was um, implicated in the attacks. In fact, he's the guy that's officially been charged. KSM, of course, talks about them. But the most interesting piece of evidence, I think, are the vein matches on his hand. They did, uh, KSM actually had to do the um, decapitation twice because the camera didn't work. So he made uh, one of his nephews reshoot the thing. And he, he, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the too graphic detail, but there was, um, he made sure that he was holding uh, the reporter's head uh, so that it could be seen on video. And you can see the veins on his, the back of his hand. And in some ways, that's almost as good of a match as a fingerprint. And so they, they say that they, that's how they matched it. You mentioned Bosnia uh, a minute ago. KSM seems to have hit a lot of the hot spots. I was working for a time in 1996 on Bosnian affairs when I was in the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. And I remember the CIA was paying very close attention to Islamic non-governmental organizations mm-hmm. in the Balkans uh, then. And uh, your book says that um, that KSM was actually working for an Egyptian NGO in Bosnia at the time. Did he sort of wander through the CIA's sites then? Was there a missed opportunity maybe to grab him uh, while he was in Bosnia? You know, that's a, another very good question. I um, You may have written one or two of the reports that I looked at about this. Um, you know, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, this has been a case, you know, at least twice in, in the recent history of the United States where the U.S. government – was um, looking very closely at some of these Islamic NGOs uh, and, in fact, um, supporting them in their fight against uh, their enemies. I mean, it happened first in Afghanistan, where we were supporting the jihad against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And even in Bosnia, from what I understand, um, from, you know, informed sources, you know, we were helping the Muslim fighters because they were they were fighting people that were our enemies. It's the old Islamic saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think it is very uh, apparent that KSM wandered through the sites of the U.S. intelligence agency. Whether um, they had enough information to go on is another question. They did, the, the Bosnian government, uh, and we have documents to show this, did have his his address and his title and his position within the organization. There was also... Uh, apparently some sort of missed opportunity in gutter a little later on. What happened there? Well, that's the big one. That's when they should have caught him. Um, you know, the, if you ask the agents who were involved, um, they'll tell you that they should have caught him there. And by agents involved, you mean the FBI? Yeah, but, but also the CIA. Okay. Um, and, you know, we lay some of that out in the book. Um, I have to be careful about revealing sources and methods here because some of the people are still in the government. But, um, you know, they, um, you know, KSM liked to have a good time. He, he loved um, hanging out in karaoke bars in the Philippines and and hanging out with bar girls, which makes him a lot different and more interesting in my book than Osama bin Laden. They tracked him to Qatar because he had been sending cards to a Filipino bar girl. And when they went to interview her parents, they got a card with his return address. It had been whited out by KSM. And they sent it to the FBI lab and, of course, got his address in Qatar, knew that he had been uh, given a job by the Qatar um, royal family, um, as they had with a lot of Mujahideen. And so they knew exactly where he was. Uh, they decided to, um, you know, take the issue to the White House. They told President Clinton, reminded him that this is the guy that was trying to kill you. Um, and um, there was a lot of back and forth about whether they should go in with a military team, uh, a black covert snatch and grab team, uh, or go in the, through the front door and ask the Qatar government for help. 
And that's ultimately what they did. And while the FBI rendition team was there waiting to take KSM into custody, he was alerted to this and slipped out the back door. So um, they think that they were within hours of catching him, maybe maybe even more, uh, maybe even minutes. And if not for that, 9-11 presumably wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. I mean, KSM is the guy who brought the plot to bin Laden. It took him a couple of years to convince him to do it. And then uh, KSM is the guy who made it happen. Um, so, sure, I, I think that there would be no uh, 9-11 without KSM. It's very interesting you're talking about KSM liking to have a good time, hanging out in the karaoke bars, for crying out loud, corresponding with, with, with bar girls. Uh, to, what extent, to what extent do you have a, a feeling of, of what really makes him tick as a person? I mean, as you sort of implied in contrasting him with Osama bin Laden, um, that sort of behavior doesn't fit what we're led to expect from a you know, super aesthetic, uh, you know, fundamentalist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda ally or member of Al-Qaeda. Was, is this guy sincere in his uh, you know, faith, or does he just want to have a good time not only with the bar girls, but blowing up Americans because he enjoys it? Um, you know, when you write a book uh, like this and you interview many, many scores of people, um, a lot of the black and white areas recede and everything becomes you know, more complicated than that. Um, and KSM, to me, is a, an extremely complicated uh, and fascinating guy. I mean, he, um, in some respects, is a very religious um, Muslim, and he believes that the United States uh, has you know, done um, you know, very grievous uh, things to his people. And that, um, I mean, he really believes that he's like an Islamic uh, or Islamist uh, George Washington uh, you know, uh, leading an insurgent army against an oppressive and tyrannical foreign government. Uh, and in this case, that's the big bad United States. But, you know, he, he really did seem to enjoy what he was doing. He liked to have a good time. Um, he he um, is extremely intelligent, and there's a lot of indications that he, that this was sort of a game to him, especially when he was on the run. Um, to give you one anecdote, um, Frank Pellegrino, the FBI agent who had been chasing him, um, finally get a chance to confront KSM in, in Guantanamo in 2007, 15 years after he started chasing him. And we have some scenes in the book about that where, where um, you know, Frank needed to get in there to basically build a case against KSM because the CIA case, you know, couldn't be introduced as evidence. And so he started telling KSM, you know, I'm the guy that was following you here and there. And KSM laughed and said, oh, so you're the one. And he even told uh, Pellegrino that he knew which hotel he was staying in in Qatar. So, you know, the FBI agent all of a sudden had a chill going down his spine because he realized that, you know, during the time when he thought he was the hunter, he might have been the hunted. Well, that is a little creepy, I got to tell yeah. you. <laughs> um, now, what I think is interesting also is, and you make this very clear in the book, that when 9-11 happened, it was not at all clear that KSM had, mm-hmm. you know, been the, the mastermind of it. In fact, you actually start your book with um, Abu Zubaydah. Right. Why is that? Um, you know, again, I think KSM fell through the cracks. I think that, um, you know, if there's one lesson to be learned from this, it's that while the government was focusing on this monolithic organization called Al-Qaeda, uh, that KSM was off a little bit off to the side doing this plot, um, even the agents from the FBI and the CIA that were most actively involved in the hunt for Al-Qaeda um, even those on the front lines in Pakistan after 9-11 said that they had no idea that KSM was involved. Um, and uh, it was only after the capture of a guy named Abu Zubaydah, as you mentioned, uh, who was an al-Qaeda commander, um, that uh, that they found out. And it was really a fluke, too. They were 
Um, the FBI agents uh, at that point had been clearly designated as the backbenchers, you know, that the CIA was taking over, but they hadn't gotten some CIA agents to the site where Abu Zubaydah was, and he was dying. So these two FBI agents were there. Luckily, they knew a lot about al-Qaeda, and luckily they um, had a, um, a sort of a six-pack or 12-pack of photos of al-Qaeda leaders, and they were showing them to Abu Zubaydah, and they accidentally showed him a photo of KSM, and he said, that's Mukhtar. And, and they realized that what he was saying was that KSM was this very elusive um, person who um, was very much wanted by the U.S. government named Mukhtar, which means the brain or the chosen one, who bin Laden had thanked for the 9-11 attacks. And so they added these up and they said, you know, you know oh, my God, you know, the guy that we've been looking for has been in front of us all along. Now, Abu Zubaydah, of course, is one of those high-value detainees who very famously was waterboarded. Mm -hmm. uh, did his waterboarding have any connection with his, you know, spilling of this really important bit of information that the real mastermind behind 9-11 was KSM? Nope, not at all. And if you ask the FBI, that's proof that, um, you know, that their interrogation... Uh, um, you know, methods work more than the um, than the CIA's. Um, you know, but it, and it's a very good question. One thing that we tried to do in the book is not, you know, take sides. We just tried to lay out the story as much as we could. The one thing that I think the public really um, misses about that whole, uh, you know, episode of our history is not whether or not uh, waterboarding um, techniques work. Uh, I think in the KSM case, you can make a very good point that they didn't because he was able to withhold a lot of important information, including where bin Laden was and Ayman Zawahiri, his number two, and also uh, how to get to the couriers who could lead to them. He withheld all that information. He withheld information about imminent plots in Saudi Arabia and Bali that the government never found out about. So anybody who says that the waterboarding worked, I think, needs to check the record. But even, even more importantly than that, um, it wasn't just that the techniques weren't effective, or it was that the people that were doing the questioning didn't really know a lot about al-Qaeda. So if KSM had said, you know what, um, you got me, I'm going to tell you whatever you want to know, the people asking the questions didn't know what to ask him. And so they lost a lot of time. Um, people like Frank Pellegrino, the FBI agent, were furious because they weren't allowed to get anywhere near KSM. And in their belief, if they had, they would have been able to unravel a lot more information about al-Qaeda um, very quickly uh, after KSM's capture. So Abu Zubaydah was the one then who made for us that critical link. Uh, can you just maybe an outline? And I don't 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 spoil too much of this because it's well worth reading the the, the tale in the in the book by itself. But sort of in in brief outline, sort of how does how does that realization uh, that we got from Abu Zubaydah that aha Mukhtar is KSM? He's mm -hmm. the guy who did nine eleven. How does how does that lead then to KSM's capture in mm -hmm. what was it two thousand three? Yeah. Well, that was almost a year earlier. Uh, in fact, it was more. It was just about a year earlier. Um, I mean, that was a you know holy crikey moment, for lack of a better way of explaining it. I mean, they, you know, as soon as they realized that KSM was this elusive Mukhtar, they they went back through all the intelligence they had. They cross referenced Mukhtar and KSM. They realized, you know, oh my God, KSM had been, you know, in the United States for many years. He'd gotten a degree from North Carolina. FBI agents flooded the zone and started, like, you know, looking for all these academic records. Um, they retasked satellites to look for him. And they very quickly realized that he was in Karachi. Um, and, you know, but 
that's just because somebody's in Karachi, Pakistan. Um, that's a city of about as many as much as twelve million people. Yeah, it's a big really place. Knows. Twenty million people. Excuse me. Um, and so, but you know, they they started homing in on him. They started doing more electronic eavesdropping, um, and a lot of the agents, as we say in the book, really just hit the pavement in Pakistan and started knocking on doors. There was one one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is. Um, they, they found out that there was a guy, they had an eyewitness sighting of KSM in Karachi. So a couple of the agents, including this very small but feisty woman FBI agent named Jennifer Keenan, go to the door and knock on the door. And a guy shows up looking almost exactly like KSM, except he was a couple of inches shorter. And they said, you know, we're looking for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And they determined that it wasn't him. But, you know, it's... um. You know, that's the kind of stuff they had to do. And the FBI is very good at that sort of thing. As you say, mm-hmm. flooding the zone. They can put an yeah. immense number of people against a, against a problem when, yeah. they, when they have to. That's true. But, you know, amazingly, and, you know, some of the stuff in the book, um, I mean, I've, and I've said this, you know, um, I'm always struck by this, is that some of the, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's in the book, if I had sat there and tried to make it up, I couldn't have. Um, and one of them is that the FBI only had a handful of people in Pakistan even after 9/11. I think they had 12 at the most, um, and that you know, you know, is a fairly stunning number of people. You would think that they would have 100 people or 200 people there, but that shows also like how the FBI had been sort of relegated to a backbench position after 9/11. Well, and I think you mentioned that at that same time that the CIA had enormous numbers of people in Pakistan. Right. And they didn't uh, get along very well. They did actually at first. There were um, the, the CIA station chief and the FBI legal attache, the top people there, had a good personal working relationship, and that served them very well. Um, it was only after those two people left that they really started clashing with each other. Um, I mean, we have a scene in the book where um, there was one very near miss where they almost got KSM in September of 2002 uh, when they got Ramsey bin Al-Sheib, who was his number two. Uh, and they found a suitcase, a huge tattered suitcase with, like, all of KSM's belongings. And uh, they had a framed diploma of his from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical. And the FBI wanted to use it as evidence, and the CIA uh, didn't. And all of a sudden, one day, at least according to some of the people who saw it, they were uh, in the office of one of the senior CIA people in Pakistan, and KSM's diploma was on the wall as sort of a conversation piece. So that just shows you the, the difference between the two agencies. And I'm not saying one is right or the other, but you know they were like cats and dogs in many respects. Well, I want to close with this then. Um, so we chased, or the U.S. government chased Khalid Sheikh Mohammed for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, as you say, once we got him, he actually held out under interrogation remarkably well, probably, mm-hmm. certainly better than I would, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, should we view this ultimately as a success, a failure, or as sort of the U.S. intelligence community muddling through? I mean, what would be your bottom line assessment uh, of this fascinating story that, mm-hmm. that, that, that you tell here? Well, I think it's a failure. I mean, I think 9-11 happened, and it, it, couldn't, it didn't have to happen. Uh, they could have caught him when they should have caught him. Um, I do think that the people that were actually chasing him in many respects are true American heroes. I don't think you can blame them. I think they had so many obstacles uh, in their way. But I think that the biggest shortcoming is um, even if you are going to put these people in CIA custody, that you have to have some mechanism at the end of the day for um, ensuring that justice um, is done. And with bin Laden, it's easy because you kill the guy and you dump him in the ocean. But, um, you know, when you have a living person like KSM, like they're now in the position where they don't really know what to do with him. Um, it's going to be an enormous challenge for them to come up with a trial that has the kind of moral authority that they're going to need uh, for it to withstand, you know, the test of time. So, you know, I think they kind of painted themselves in a corner here. 
Well, watch the papers on that one, I guess. Yeah. Well, the book is The Hunt for KSM, Inside the Pursuit and Takedown of the Real 9-11 Mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We've been talking with Josh Meyer, who wrote the book with Terry McDermott. And Josh, thank you so much for visiting with us here at the International Spy Museum. My pleasure. Huge fan of the museum. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.